From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'd like to welcome you back to Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. By request, today on Rounds, we're discussing intra-abdominal hypertension and the abdominal compartment syndrome, or ACS. Now, as you may have noticed, the underlying theme for much of Season 1 for Trauma ICU Rounds has been the ABCs of trauma and critical care, from airway management to shock, ECMO, EPR, and everything in between. And although ACS may not initially seem to be congruent with other episodes this season, my hope is that by the end of Rounds, you have a deeper appreciation for the widespread systemic and hemodynamic consequences of intra-abdominal hypertension, as well as abdominal compartment syndrome, which are not limited simply to intra-abdominal organs or viscera. Although once perceived as having a primarily mechanical pathogenesis whereby the physical capacitance of the abdominal envelope or container was exceeded, we now appreciate that the host of deleterious effects that accompany the syndrome are, in fact, enacted systemically through the generation of biomediators, inflammatory cytokines, which result in multiple organ dysfunction syndrome through polycompartmental pressure interactions. And for me personally, this is what makes this topic a lot of fun to discuss. When patients develop this syndrome, they're not only at risk for splanchnic or renal hypoperfusion, but also cardiorespiratory compromise or distress due to the effect of increased abdominal compartment pressures on pulmonary compliance, respiratory system mechanics, as well as cardiovascular preload, stroke volume, afterload, and eventually cardiac output and the MAP. Therefore, it's important for any and all of us caring for critically ill or injured patients to have a systematic approach to the recognition and management of patients with this potentially life-threatening condition. And failure to recognize intra-abdominal hypertension and ACS is obviously associated with an increased risk for morbidity and mortality. And perhaps even more important, it really is up to us to identify patients with risk factors for intra-abdominal hypertension or ACS and institute preventive measures such as leaving an abdomen open in the setting of damage control surgery. So we have three key objectives, and by the end of rounds, you should be able to, number one, discuss common causes and the pathophysiology underlying both intra-abdominal hypertension and the abdominal compartment syndrome. Number two, describe the methods for diagnosing both intra-abdominal hypertension and ACS, specifically intravesical or bladder pressure monitoring. You know, so often I emphasize the importance of the clinical exam, but here the sensitivity is about 50%, so about as good as the CVP is in determining fluid responsiveness. And the major problem here is that the majority of patients who are at risk for developing elevated intra-abdominal pressures, or ACS, are already critically ill and mechanically ventilated. And finally, you should be able to discuss therapies from initial non-operative management to surgical intervention in the form of a decompressive laparotomy. Again, depending on the underlying etiology and in the absence of overt ACS, we may consider a step-up or tiered approach, particularly among patients with secondary abdominal compartment syndrome. So what is intra-abdominal hypertension and how does this differ from the abdominal compartment syndrome? 
For me, the key to understanding this concept is that these definitions or conditions fall on a continuum or spectrum. On one end of that spectrum are those patients with a normal intra-abdominal pressure, which in most critically ill or even healthy subjects is anywhere from 2 to 7 millimeters mercury. On the other end of the spectrum are patients with abdominal compartment syndrome, which is defined as a sustained intra-abdominal pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury with or without an abdominal perfusion pressure less than 60 millimeters mercury, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. That's associated with new onset organ dysfunction or failure. Now, in between these ends of the spectrum are patients with varying levels of increasing intra-abdominal pressure between 12 to greater than 25 millimeters of mercury. And I'd refer you to the grading scale, which was developed by the World Society of the Abdominal Compartment Syndrome, which in 2015 was rebranded as WSACS, or World Society of Abdominal Compartment Syndrome, the Abdominal Compartment Society. One of my fellow Canadians, Dr. Andy Kirkpatrick, has really made a lot of great contributions to this area of critical care, as have other trauma surgeons like Dr. Rao Ivaturi. And the 2007 clinical practice guidelines were updated in 2013, and we'll highlight some of the consensus definitions, as well as the ACS management algorithm where appropriate. One of the things that we really can't stress enough is that abdominal compartment syndrome is a syndrome and therefore comprised of a constellation of symptoms and signs, not just an isolated intra-abdominal pressure reading in time. And the most commonly encountered and readily accessible organ dysfunctions at the bedside will involve the cardiac, respiratory, and genitourinary systems in the form of hemodynamic instability or increasing vasopressor requirements decreased lung compliance with the potential for both hypercapnia, hypoxemia, and elevated peak airway pressures, as well as acute kidney injury, respectively. So, similar to when we're managing patients with elevated ICPs, or intracranial pressures, at least here in North America, we typically target a goal CPP, or cerebral perfusion pressure, which is equal to the MAP minus ICP of 60 millimeters mercury. And the abdominal pressure is calculated in the same manner, only swapping out ICP for the intravesicle or bladder pressure. You know, it really is amazing how consistent the body and its various compartments behave in terms of the relationships between compartmental pressures, volumes, and perfusion. That 20 or 25 millimeter mercury threshold is universal, whether we're talking about the lower extremity leg compartments, the abdomen, or cranium. Now, earlier, we mentioned that ACS is defined as a sustained intra-abdominal pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury, and the concept of timing is somewhat important to defining intra-abdominal hypertension. And patients can have hyperacute intra-abdominal hypertension, which refers to elevation of the intra-abdominal pressure lasting only seconds, as may be seen when someone laughs, coughs, sneezes, or is performing vigorous physical activity. Acute intra-abdominal hypertension refers to increases in the intra-abdominal pressure that develops over hours and is usually the result of trauma or intra-abdominal hemorrhage and can lead to the development of ACS if measures aren't taken. Subacute intra-abdominal hypertension refers to increase in the intra-abdominal pressure that develops over days and it's the most common in medical patients but can also lead to ACS. 
Whereas chronic intra-abdominal hypertension is increases in intra-abdominal pressure, typically developing over months, for example, in the setting of pregnancy, or years in patients with, let's say, cirrhosis with gradual accumulation of ascites or in morbidly obese patients. And although these conditions in and of themselves don't cause abdominal compartment syndrome, it certainly does place an individual or patient at a higher risk for ACS if they develop superimposed acute or subacute intra-abdominal hypertension. ACS can be defined as primary, meaning that an increase in the intra-abdominal pressure stems from a condition within the abdomen or abdominal pelvic region, such as a retroperitoneal hematoma in the setting of a ruptured AAA or gradually growing tumor or ascites. Secondary ACS refers to conditions that don't originate in the abdomen, such as large volume resuscitation or sepsis or decreased abdominal wall compliance. And finally, Tertiary, also known as recurrent ACS, refers to a condition in which intra-abdominal hypertension or the abdominal compartment syndrome redevelops after initial resolution regardless of whether the index event was primary or secondary in origin. Regarding incidence, there have been a number of studies that have looked at the incidence, risk factors, and outcomes for patients with intra-abdominal hypertension and the abdominal compartment syndrome In the 2018 Prospective Observational IROI study published in Critical Care Medicine, the study authors found 491 patients from 15 ICUs around the globe, 34% of whom were found to have intra-abdominal hypertension at the time of ICU admission, and 49% developed intra-abdominal hypertension during their ICU stay. In terms of risk factors, a 2013 systematic review and meta-analysis published in Critical Care examined 62 potential risk factors for IAH or ACS, and not surprisingly, significant risk factors commonly included those suggested to be appropriate indications for use of damage control surgery in trauma patients. So patients who are severely acidemic have undergone large volume resuscitation, and have ongoing evidence of coagulopathy, just to name a few of those risk factors. And this observation supports that many of the factors are predictive not only for the occurrence of IAH or ACS and the need for aggressive intervention, but also for identifying the sickest of the sick patients. Outside of damage control surgery in the setting of trauma or EGS, other groups at risk include patients with burns, particularly if they are torso-circumferential burns, those patients undergoing liver transplantation, patients with abdominal or retroperitoneal pathologies, medical illnesses such as sepsis, typically accompanied by iatrogenic dryland drowning, and post-surgical patients. A nice and simple way of thinking about risk factors is to break them down into two categories, bearing in mind that compliance is equal to delta V, or the change in volume, over delta P, or the change in pressure. If we rearrange that solving for pressure, put another way, intra-abdominal pressure is directly proportional to changes in volume, specifically intra-abdominal volume, and inversely proportional to decreases in abdominal wall compliance. So, in one category, there are those factors that decrease abdominal wall compliance, and this would include patients with morbid obesity, prolonged proning, burns, and tight abdominal wall closures, say after a ventral hernia repair. The second category involves an increase in intra-abdominal content. So outside of blood, 
What other contents might increase volume? Well, in addition to fluid or third spacing, significant gaseous distension. And we've seen patients develop intra-abdominal compartment syndrome in the setting of a significant Ogilvy's or gas-containing colon, which ultimately results in malperfusion as well as patients with masses ascites or in the setting of damage control surgery. You can imagine, let's say, a gunshot wound to the liver with significant hepatic venous or maybe a retrohepatic cable injury that gets packed. Packing will result in an increase in intra-abdominal contents as well. Regarding pathophysiology and organ dysfunction, these days I think it's fairly well accepted that both intra-abdominal hypertension and the abdominal compartment syndrome often develop as a result of two physiologic hits. The first hit involves shock resuscitation with resultant ischemic reperfusion injury with the resultant release of inflammatory mediators, cytokines which prime neutrophils, increase bowel mucosal permeability with bowel wall edema, and the potential for bacterial translocation. Then the second hit comes when the resultant abdominal visceral edema leads to intra-abdominal hypertension with compression of intra-abdominal lymphatics and capillary blood flow accompanied by decrease in bowel wall perfusion, varying degrees of intestinal mucosal ischemia, translocation, and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. Regarding the effects of intra-abdominal hypertension on different organs and systems, it's important to remember the anatomic boundaries of the abdominal cavity, which is bounded by the diaphragm superiorly, the retroperitoneum posteriorly, the peritoneal reflection in the bony pelvis, and of course, the abdominal wall. Again, much like any other compartment in the body, sustained compartmental hypertension within a fixed volume capacity will lead to compromised perfusion. And you've all heard me say this before, but I like to break up the body into six key organ systems from the top down, brain, heart, lungs, kidney, liver, and coags. But for the purposes of the abdominal compartment syndrome, we'll replace heme or coags with the abdomen or more specifically the intestines. So with that said, let's quickly go over how intra-abdominal hypertension or the abdominal compartment syndrome affects these key organ systems. Regarding the brain or neurologic function, the increase in intra-abdominal pressure will force the diaphragm upwards, thereby decreasing the volume of the thoracic cavity and increasing intrathoracic pressure. As you can imagine, when it comes to venous drainage from the brain, if the intrathoracic pressure is increased and the right atrial pressure and jugular venous pressures are increased, that gradient for blood return is going to be reduced. And this can lead to increases in intracranial pressure with the potential to decrease cerebral blood flow. When it comes to the heart or cardiovascular manifestations, these may present as a low cardiac output and high peripheral vascular resistance. And the, the physiologic interaction between the abdominal as well as the cardiovascular systems are really fascinating. That Decrease in cardiac output may result from compression of the abdominal vena cava and the increase in transthoracic pressure leading to not only a decrease in venous return, but also decreased right ventricular compliance. Now add to that the increased intrathoracic pressure with the potential to compress the pulmonary veins, and now we've got a situation where the afterload on the right heart is increased as well. 
obviously these changes to the right heart will affect the left ventricle as well. And again, that decreased preload with result in decreased stroke volume will result in a decreased cardiac output. And in an effort to respond or compensate, this is why patients may develop an increase in their total peripheral resistance or SVR. When it comes to the respiratory or pulmonary system, remember that the abdominal pressure, once again, is resulting in decreased thoracic compliance, and this is going to lead to decreases in tidal volumes and minute ventilation. This increase in transthoracic pressure may also result in worsening atelectasis due to compression, as well as an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance. And so this may manifest as either hypercarbia with progression to hypoxemia. And the one thing to note here, particularly if patients are on volume-controlled ventilation, this may be accompanied by an increase in their peak airway pressures, or in patients who are on a pressure-control ventilation mode, this may manifest as smaller or lower tidal volumes for any set pressure. Acute kidney injury is another clinical manifestation of intra-abdominal hypertension, and not only does the decreased cardiac output that we talked about earlier precipitate a pre-renal injury, the intra-abdominal hypertension leads to direct compression of the renal arterioles and tubules, causing an intrinsic renal injury as well, and that direct compression also activates the RAS system, or the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone signaling cascade, which further increases systemic vascular resistance and potentially worsening cardiac output. When it comes to the liver, further compounding the metabolic acidosis that may develop with intra-abdominal hypertension, you know, the liver and the hepatic portal circulation are profoundly sensitive to intra-abdominal pressures, and even small increases in intra-abdominal pressure can alter portal blood flow and therefore hepatic oxygen delivery, and this impairment may result in decreased clearance of plasma lactate. Finally, with regards to intestinal function, decreased splanchnic perfusion may result in a lactic acidosis, as well, bowel ischemia can also expedite physiologic decompensation. We already talked earlier about the potential for translocation, but certainly by the time patients develop evidence of intestinal ischemia, this becomes a surgical emergency, and these patients really need to have an emergent decompressive laparotomy performed. So moving on to objective two, or recognition and diagnosis of the abdominal compartment syndrome or intra-abdominal hypertension, the key here is to think about the potential for the presence of either of these conditions based on the presence or absence of risk factors that we discussed earlier. We really need to and must maintain a high index of suspicion for patients at risk. And I know I say this a lot, but it's absolutely true. You've all heard me talk about the importance of the physical exam, but it's been well established that the physical examination lacks sensitivity when assessing for the presence or absence of intra-abdominal hypertension. Therefore, we use intrabladder or bladder pressures as the gold standard. And in a lot of SICUs, uh, particularly here at Harbor, we like to think of the bladder pressure as the sixth vital sign. And so in terms of measuring a bladder pressure, there are several things to bear in mind. This is typically done by transducing the bladder pressure via an indwelling urinary catheter, using either a jury-rigged device or a commercially available system. Here we use the Compass HG. 
but a standard pressure transducer zeroed at the level of the bladder will suffice as well. Patients ideally should be supine, should not be exerting any particular efforts to contract their abdominal walls, and in this situation are typically pharmacologically relaxed or deeply sedated while mechanically ventilated. Now, when should we measure these pressures? Well, if a patient has two or more risk factors for intra-abdominal hypertension, then serial bladder pressure should be obtained and monitored. Our protocol here is to do them Q6H or more frequently if we're concerned. Again, although we've emphasized that the physical exam won't tell you if intra-abdominal hypertension is present or not, findings of progressive organ failure should suggest the potential for abdominal compartment syndrome. Therefore, in addition to assessing skin color, temperature, cap refill, I always, always, always pay attention to the initiation of vasopressors or upward titration of vasopressors if they were already on. You definitely want to take a look at the vent and get a sense as to what the peak airway pressures are and maybe even do an inspiratory breath hold and calculate the patient's plateau pressures to get a sense as to problems with increased resistance in the case of peak airway pressures or compliance in the case of elevated plateau pressures. And finally, make sure you pay attention to the urine output. Is your patient now oliguric or potentially aneuric? And these findings together should suggest to you that the patient has abdominal compartment syndrome. Now, when it comes to assessing neurologic brain function or ICP, that's not something that we're going to be able to tell. Whether you want to use optic nerve sheath diameters, that's kind of out there as a thing, but certainly not validated in this particular setting. Again, when it comes to intestinal and hepatic flow, these really aren't available to the senses. So the major focus here should be on the cardiorespiratory and genitourinary organ systems. Now, the only other adjunct to mention is POCUS, or point-of-care ultrasound, and the World Society of the Abdominal Compartment Syndrome actually recently supported use of this in the management algorithm in order to help facilitate bedside decision-making skills. Again, some patients may be so sick that it's not possible to get them down to the CT scanner. And a recent study showed that POCUS was useful not only in confirming appropriate NG tube placement for decompression, but also for evaluating bowel activity and for detecting the presence of moderate to large amounts of intra-abdominal free fluid, which may be treated by drainage. Now, personally, I don't use ultrasound to confirm NG tube placement. We still use chest x-rays for that but certainly ruling out the presence of ascites and then using ultrasound to guide your paracentesis if it's indicated, I think is a great idea, particularly in patients who have secondary ACS. Regarding intra-abdominal hypertension and the abdominal compartment syndrome management, this can be broken down into initial non-operative or medical management and then surgical management. Regarding non-operative management, there's really five key or important steps. Number one, evacuate intraluminal intestinal content. So this typically involves placing an NG, decompressing the bowel, and in cases of patients who have colonic pathology, particularly if there's a large stool burden or they've got an Ogilvy syndrome, then we want to do everything we can to help get that colon evacuated. Number two, we want to empty the abdominal and or retroperitoneal 
extraluminal contents. So again, this gets back to patients who may have ascites that has developed over the course of their ICU stay or hospitalization. And if these patients have ascites with elevated intra-abdominal pressures, well, ultrasound-guided paracentesis will be very helpful. And again, this is usually more indicated in patients with secondary ACS, let's say a patient with severe sepsis, with aggressive fluid resuscitation, or burns is another great example, where they can develop ascites as a result of third spacing in the setting of large volume resuscitation. Number three, we want to improve abdominal compliance. And in this regard, we want to make sure that our patients are really well sedated, as well as analgesed. Remember, just because a patient has an open abdomen with a negative pressure wound dressing, it doesn't mean that they can't develop abdominal compartment syndrome. So take a good look at their wound vac, make sure that there's no bowel spilling out, and assess the overall abdominal wall compliance. Again, early in the course, they're not going to have too much lateralization of the abdominal wall. And so depending on the size of the incision, as well as a host of other risk factors, including lap pads, sponges, ongoing bleeding, these patients may be at risk for increased uh, abdominal pressures. In those cases where sedation and analgesia alone just aren't cutting it, certainly considering neuromuscular blockade is another strategy to improve abdominal wall compliance. Number four, we want to optimize fluid administration. And in this regard, again, we want to avoid excessive fluid resuscitation, the dry land drowning we talked about earlier. Ideally, we're aiming for zero balance. But again, this has to be taken in the context of everything else that's going on with your patients. And this is where having some sort of protocolized resuscitation strategy will be helpful whether you want to use POCUS, passive leg raising, or other non-invasive hemodynamic monitors to assess measures of fluid responsiveness, this is probably the right way to go. And then finally, number five, we want to optimize tissue perfusion. And again, this is going to be done with the use of non-invasive and, where indicated, invasive hemodynamic monitoring techniques to establish and help guide us in terms of our resuscitation efforts. Just to reemphasize, the medical management of patients with intra-abdominal hypertension is a totally reasonable strategy. But in patients who have overt abdominal compartment syndrome, again, this is a surgical emergency. And the entire potential spectrum of surgical management of both IAH and ACS can be conceptualized to occur in six stages. Number one, ideally, we can surgically prevent the development of either of these conditions, so damage control surgery with an open abdomen in the appropriately selected patient population. We're not going to get into it today, but there was certainly a time where damage control surgery was being done really unnecessarily. Uh, you know, patients would have a spleen injury and then go for an open abdomen, and that's really not appropriate, but certainly in cases where it's indicated, we want to prevent and avoid the development of these complications. Number two, abdominal decompression, and that's going to be via a laparotomy. Some folks may opt for a minimally invasive fasciotomy, but at our shop, we do from xiphoid process down to the pubis symphysis, a nice, wide, broad laparotomy. Number three is temporary abdominal closure, and typically that's with a negative pressure wound dressing. Number four, management of the open abdominal wound in the ICU. Number five, avoidance of wound complications, specifically soft tissue infections, typically deep or superficial, abdominal abscesses, and of course, enteroatmospheric fistula. 
And number six, staged abdominal reconstruction. Ideally, the earlier, the better. But again, with a lot of these patients, there's just so much going on and they are complex and complicated that oftentimes it takes quite a few trips back to the OR, plus or minus the use of a fascial traction system to get that uh, abdominal viscera covered. And in a future episode, we'll have Dr. Angie Neville join us on round. She's one of my partners who has a true love for anything and everything related to the open abdomen as well as complex abdominal wall closures, particularly in the setting of entroatmospheric or entrocutaneous fistulas. Regarding data or evidence to support the use of decompressive laparotomy, a 2018 systematic review and meta-analysis on the effect of decompressive laparotomy on organ function in patients with ACS, in fact, did find that following decompression, the mean intra-abdominal pressure in adults decreased by an average of about 18 plus or minus 7 millimeters mercury. And this was, not surprisingly, accompanied by a subsequent decrease in heart rate, central venous pressure, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, and peak inspiratory pressures. But despite this, the overall mortality following decompressive laparotomy is 50% and even higher in children. Now, as we stated earlier, ideally patients who undergo a decompressive laparotomy will eventually, or at that time, have either a commercially available negative pressure wound therapy device placed for temporary abdominal closure, or a non-commercial slash Barker's vacuum pack can be used as well. Now, in terms of data supporting the use of negative pressure devices, the whole idea here is that in addition to removing ascites, there is maybe the potential for peritoneal pro-inflammatory mediators to be removed as well, which might ultimately decrease the systemic inflammatory response. But this has really come from smaller studies that are highly heterogeneous and so don't know that we can really chalk up too much in terms of decreasing the cytokine or pro-inflammatory milieu within the abdominal cavity. And to date, only one RCT published in 2015 was designed to determine if the Abthera, which is a commercially available system, and I think our shop is probably one of the highest consumers of Abthera on the West Coast, is or was more efficacious than the Barker's vacuum pack at reducing the extent of SERS response after damage control in patients with abdominal injuries or sepsis. And in this trial, they reported an improved survival with the Abthera, but didn't really appear to be mediated by an improvement in peritoneal fluid drainage, markers of the SERS response, or primary fascial closure rates. Once the decompressive laparotomy has been performed, we really want to make sure that we're instituting general, good, solid, evidence-based critical care. A lot of these patients may suffer from ARDS, and so instituting a low tidal volume ventilation strategy together with the higher PEEP is going to be very, very important to recruit the derecruited and atelectatic posterior or dorsal segments of the lung. Additionally, we want to make sure that we're achieving zero balance and having early discussions about deresuscitation in patients and really trying to minimize uh, overly aggressive fluid administration. Ideally, these patients should be fed. Again, remember, an open abdomen is not a contraindication to enteral feeding, and the sooner we can get enteral trophic feeds going, the better. 
Now, one of the major morbidities that's associated with uh, an open abdomen management following a decompressive laparotomy for abdominal compartment syndrome is the scourge of incisional hernias, which ranges from 20 to greater than 50% of patients who undergo this procedure. So the earlier we can get patients back to the OR and get their fascia closed, the less likely they are to lateralize their abdominal walls, thereby complicating our ability to achieve primary fascial closure. So in conclusion, intra-abdominal hypertension has a higher prevalence than once believed and may affect up to 50% of critical care patients. The whole point here is that untreated or unrecognized intra-abdominal hypertension has the potential to progress to the abdominal compartment syndrome, which has a much higher morbidity and mortality rate and is a surgical emergency. So the big keys to managing intra-abdominal hypertension is number one, early identification, and this should be based on those risk factors that we discussed earlier in today's rounds. For patients that do develop ACS, decompressive laparotomy is the gold standard treatment. And again, Patients who undergo abdominal decompression in this setting have a very high mortality rate as well as a high morbidity rate, typically in the form of wound complications and incisional hernias. Don't forget about POCUS, a really important part of our diagnostic workup. But again, this is a syndrome with associated symptoms and signs which are typically referable to the cardio, respiratory, and genitourinary systems. And that wraps up Trauma ICU Rounds for today. If you like what you're hearing or you feel like the content is valuable to you, your education, and the clinical care of your patients, please do let us know and share that with us. You can visit iTunes, leave us a positive rating and comment. Alternatively, wherever you download your podcast from, you can leave a comment there. And please don't forget to visit us at the website, traumaicurounds.com. Check out the show notes. And if there's any particular topics that you want me to discuss in the future, let us know there. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, and please do take care of one another.